0: Hey, everyone. I'm Jacob Cohen Donnelly, and this is A Media Operator. This show is a discussion about building media companies for current and prospective media operators. We discuss business models, products, subscriptions, advertising, commerce, everything to help you with your media business. To learn more and to become a premium member of the newsletter, visit amediaoperator.com membership and use the coupon code podcast10 to get 10% off an annual plan. Special thanks to Omida, the exclusive sponsor of season two of the AMO podcast. My guest this week is Arsalan Arif, the founder and publisher of Endpoints News, a media company about the biopharma world. In this 50-minute conversation, we discussed his unique subscription product that they offer, how ads and subscriptions work together, the two different strategies for events, and how the business has grown since its early days. I hope you enjoy our discussion. According to your subscription page, you launched Endpoint News in 2016. How did you find your way to launching a biopharma publication?
1: Oh, well, it comes from um, my past, and uh, it, um, I was at uh, Fierce Markets before this, and uh, I was the publisher for the Life Sciences Vertical there, and that's where I met my partner now, my co-founder, John Carroll. Um, and it was there that I got into life sciences actually, and that's, um, how I learned this industry and actually learned a lot of what I do now. And that's how I got into it.
0: And so your background prior to fierce had nothing to do with life sciences, right? Or nope. were you like a biology major or anything like that?
1: Nope. Nope. Um, uh, AP biology was my worst subject, uh, in school. Uh, so no, uh, absolutely not. No.
0: So I want to spend uh, a second talking about Fierce because uh, the very first guest of the AMO podcast ever was Brian at Exits and Outcomes. I had Sean from Industry Dive on the show. He started that company with Ryan and Eli. And then there's you. The one thing you all have in common is that you spent time working at Fierce Markets actually around the same time and then went on to launch your own companies afterwards. Some might say that this is a sort of Fierce Markets Mafia. If we think of it similarly to the PayPal mafia, why do you think Fierce wound up creating so many independent media operators? Uh, a lot of the credit goes to Sean Griffey, uh,
1: the co-founder of Industry Dive. He's a he's a good friend, um, but really, more importantly, a really good mentor. Um, he um, he came into this. The founder of that company came in and, and founded. He brought Sean in. Um, a little bit before I joined uh, Fierce, um, Brian was already there, and Brian was uh, actually in a different vertical. He was um, a wireless reporter, um, writing for Fierce Wireless. Actually, we, uh, even though we had nothing to do with that vertical, uh, Brian and I actually covered the launch of the first iPhone together. Um, even though I was in uh, life sciences and he was, a- so um, either way, uh, a lot of the credit goes to Sean Griffey because there was a- a- it was a good business sense. Uh, at Fierce, right? Um, at a media company, essentially, it's a business. Um, and that's what we learned over there. And frankly, Sean was kind of brought in over there to institute a business and a process in a way. Uh, and when, you know, I can speak to my experience, um, you know, Brian could speak to his, but to mine, when I met Sean, I was, uh, I was really an entrepreneur uh, looking for something. Um, and really, he came in and um, I didn't have that kind of training of like, here's how to run a PL. Uh, here's how to do this. I did feel like I could I knew a lot about news. I could I knew um I could rely on my partner John Carroll to kind of help me with that kind of stuff. But what what Sean taught me was was really how to run a media business. Um and that I think a lot of that we we did that over many years and we grew that thing together. And and um, you know, he and Ryan Willemson and Eli Dickinson, they went on to to found Industry Dive. Uh, John Carroll and I went on to found Endpoints News and frankly a lot of that just came from some of that basic blocking and tackling and building a business and and making sure that there's frankly enough money in the bank to run a media company and to, to fund one's ambitions and to actually run a business. Um, really
0: I thank Sean for that. So there are a multitude of media companies that cover the biopharma space, right? Sean's got his own with Biopharma Dive. You've got Stat News, which covers it up in Boston. So there are so many different publications that do it. What is Endpoint's angle or perspective on the industry that makes you guys unique?
1: Uh, We're covering um, for the core biopharma audience day in and day out. Um, if you work in this audience, uh, sorry, if you work in this industry, you work in, let's say, manufacturing, you're in a, in a biopharma manufacturing, you do cell and gene therapies, or even you manufacture small molecules, or you manufacture the, the stuff that you and I buy at CVS when we have a cold or Afrin or something like that, right? If you want to stay on top of your industry on a day in and day out basis. So you want to know what your competitors are doing. You want to know what incidents have happened. You want to know what the hot market is. You want to know the analysis. That's where you're going to find it at endpoints day and day. You know, sometimes um, our stories are not, you know, sexy, um, I'd say, but it's information um, and it's news. Right, um, and that's what we're looking to deliver in all of these sort of industries. And we've identified some key industries and some some verticals within the life sciences and biopharma, which we just think are key and, and actually amenable to be served by this sort of daily or weekly news product that we're really good at putting out. Uh, and I all of those ones that you mentioned, like Stat News, I'm a big fan. I love Stat News. Um, and we link to it. It's a very important organization, won a really great award. Uh, I really want to congratulate them. Um, they do great work. Um, and so does Biopharma Dive. Um, and and we have a place there too. And, and some of those stories that we're going to do, they may not do. Sometimes we're going to cover some of the same stories over there, but day in and day out. Um, we're we're the journeyman going out there and the journey journeywoman putting out that that content every single day um for our core audience.
0: So I want to jump right into the business side of things, because this is what a media operator is all about. Um to start, let's discuss your subscription business. On your business model page, which I think is one of the most transparent pages I've seen any media company put out, uh, you say that enterprise subscriptions are the most important way to support your business. But your model is unique because you charge $1,000 per company to get unlimited seats to Endpoint News. And that doesn't matter if there's 10 people at the company or 1,000 people at the company. Can you talk about the logic behind this strategy? Because it is fundamentally unique compared to most other media companies.
1: It's unique. Um, It's unique. I've certainly (laughs) – the first thing I want to say about that is that if there's companies hearing this and they say, hey, I want a subscription, I would run and go buy one of those right now because uh, we may not be offering it for much longer. Um, so, so, so there's that, uh, you know, we have some important hiring news. I can't talk about it just yet, but we have some, we have some great hiring news coming soon. And, 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 uh, and, uh, I think we'll always have a place. So the logic behind that comes from the fact that if you are a company, I want to try to make all of our information, our basic news, our news product, I want to make that as as accessible as possible for as many people as possible always. So we have a basic news product in which it doesn't cost anything. Um, I'd say 75 to 90% of our content on a daily basis is free, basic, doesn't require anything. Um, but even that paywall content, that extra sort of stuff, I still want to make it pretty accessible, particularly to companies. I want to make that discovery at a Pfizer, at a Novartis, uh, at these big companies. Which, of course, at this price point, we have a, quite a few companies who, who've joined. But I want to make the discovery of our product and the discovery of our news product as freely as accessible as possible to everyone at these companies. And so that's the that's the that's the logic behind this. So we've had a lot of success with that, um, but um, that's not to say that. Uh, There wouldn't be products in the future which would have other kind of added benefits which would cost more and be more in line with your per seat or or that kind of model. But really, it's it's out of a desire to make our news as accessible as possible. And some of it does require cost, but we think it's a cost that just about every single company can afford.
0: Yeah, $1,000 is not that much money uh, to get your team access to this news. For operators that are listening, if they were curious about... Offering a similar type of structure. When analyzing a market, how large of a market do you think has to exist for that to work? Is it a thousand companies, ten thousand companies? Because if you think about it, one thousand companies paying thousand dollars is equal to a million dollars in revenue, right? So, in your opinion, how big does the market, from a company number perspective, have to be to make for this to be a viable model?
1: Um, it's not a viable mar- model unless you also have a significant advertising business, which we do. Um, and our advertising business right now is much larger than our subscription business, much, much larger than our subscription business. Um, though you're right, as you quoted that, that type of revenue for us, though, um, again, this is a media company, right? This is the type of stuff you learn that's a little bit different than a other kind of company for right now for us, that subscription revenue is more important to me. On a, on a long-term basis to me for the health of my company and our company than the advertising revenue is the advertising revenue is only as good as our next what we're delivering are we delivering the proper brand impressions are we delivering the right kind of uh, next to their ads Are we delivering leads all that kind of stuff they're looking for for that kind of advertising but with the subscription business are they paying for our content do they value our content so it may be at a different price point, but if I see that product selling like hotcakes, and I see the right companies buying it, lots of companies buying it, uh, then I know it's 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 winning. So, what your question? Back to your question of what kind of thing? I think you've also got to. I think it'll it, it's worked for us, um, and also the reason we also did it is essentially other companies may come in and just say, hey, we have a we're going to bring a Pico in or other kind of um, software they may bring in, Memberful or whatever you may use. They're all gr- they all have their pros and cons, um, but uh, they may not have that kind of option built in. For us at endpoints, uh, just because of my background, like I, just, I like to code. I like to program. I'm not great at it, but it was just one of those things that I was able to do a little bit in our company's formation to get this stuff, and that's what me and uh, my team was able to kind of code um, very cheaply and quickly and in a way that worked um, along with our sort of vision. So other companies may not have that where they, their, their team may come back and just say, Hey, here's a model and here's, it works. And this other thing is crazy to do that. Well, yeah, I understand. I've had a lot of people tell me it's actually crazy what we do. and, uh, you know, they might be right actually.
0: So you said that the ad business generates more revenue than the subscription business. Let's talk about that for a little bit. What are the products that you're offering your clients and how do you think about pricing those products?
1: Well, we price them, um, okay, what do we sell? We sell, essentially, we sell branding, right? We will sell brand opportunities next to our premium properties, which will be our website and our newsletter. Um, And so those are our two things, our email newsletter and our website in which you can get, you know, sort of prime opportunities. And those are limited. Um, So we don't slice and dice those beyond our kind of top level skew. So that would be sort of our main endpoints edition or endpoints pharma or endpoints marketing RX. So you can buy a brand impressions there and you're going to buy it all or nothing at that point. Um, And so that's a, that's generally a brand play. We're selling lead generation opportunities. Um, You know, we're selling those through webinars. We're selling those through virtual events. We're selling those through email blasts. Um, Those are what we're selling, but we also, you know, we, we look at our inventory and we, Create um, we create uh, artificial inventory, right? We actually limit it and just say there's a certain point in which we will not send any more emails to our subscribers, even if it's a $25,000 contract that an agency will just give to us at the last second or something. Um, there's a certain amount of kind of guardrails that is actually built into the product itself that actually prevents excess, um, And because we're independent um, we actually don't have any kind of investors or anyone to actually say that we shouldn't be doing that kind of thing essentially. Um, and so those are the things that uh, we, we, we will sell just in terms of like a rates and space conversation that people will, will call us up. Um, we'll also sell um, through our studio, essentially if people want to come to us and just say, Hey, we really want to be with endpoints. Um, we like your brand. Um, we want to reach this audience, but And we have some ideas, but we don't know how, um, or we just don't have, we're at 70% help us bring it to a hundred percent. Um, so there's that kind of conversation. We have a great studio team that will essentially sell them the space and then sell them obviously the services on top of that. Um, and, um, now, our events business which is actually just coming back, which that's also, I guess, essentially part of our advertising um, business, what we would consider, and all that's coming back. So, all of that is a bigger piece of the pie uh, right now than our subscriptions business.
0: Yeah, and I wanna talk about the events business in a few minutes. Um, but biopharma is an interesting industry. Who, like, what type of companies are actually advertising? Because if your readers work at biopharma companies, who is trying to sell to the biopharma companies? Who is the advertising set? Is it Pfizer or is it somebody else entirely? Well, Pfizer is
1: a client, certainly, because Pfizer has to hire, you know, cell and gene therapy scientists, and that's probably some of the hottest jobs. <laughs> you know, if you can get that kind of job, it's a pretty good gig right now. Um, and so, so certainly they will do that. But, right, that's not the primary advertising target. Exactly, you're right. Um, But, uh, for example, it will be, uh, if you're not familiar with the biotech industry, I guess it would be akin to the Foxcons of the industry who want to advertise to the IP holders who are the biopharma companies who essentially read us. And so there will be the companies that run clinical trials. There will be the companies that manufacture all of the materials. It will be materials that will be for commercial Commercialization—the stuff that we buy at Walgreens and CVS, and the stuff that gets prescribed to us, and the stuff that gets administer- administered to us at hospitals—but also all of the drug material that is produced in clinical trials as well. And so there's a lot of that type of very complex type of work that goes into a very limited number of doses. So that cost per goods over there is, as you can imagine, insanely high uh, for something like that. So it's actually it's a very lucrative market, and so. You'll have sometimes in some of these markets, you'll have eight or 10 giant companies who will just constantly be vying for mind share and attention, essentially be one giant saying, no, we're the biggest. Um, and then a couple of years later, no, we're the biggest. So if we can be at the top end of the
0: market, generally, there'll be a good place for that type of brand advertising. So I want to go back to something you said about lead gen, which is that you, you create artificial supply you know, and you'll decide not to send another email, even though a, you know an agency could be dangling twenty five k. You're like, no, we're not going to do it. Obviously, as the founder or as the co founder of the business, you can say that. But have you put what are the processes that you've put in place? Like, what are the systems that you've put in place? Because a lot of when I talk to a lot of people in B two B, they get very addicted to that email blast, and it's just one more email blast, it's another. It's, just, it's like it's cashing checks. It's so easy. What other systems you've put in place to make sure that you're not uh, overwhelming your audience?
1: We have a great uh, client success team that actually's heard the message and is actually empowered to say no to our sales team. I guess that's the that the beautiful thing about running a truly independent media business is that. So, of course, everyone likes money, Jacob. Everyone listening to this podcast probably likes money, and so I have been at companies in which exactly that's right exactly like cashing that check so it's not that of course we were we we were faced with that exact thing this week this this issue Uh, exactly and so it's so fresh and fresh in my mind how we actually solve this Um, because essentially it all starts from you know our yearly goal right are we on pace to hit it we've got a great cfo he's they're telling us are we going to hit it or not it kind of starts from that confidence. First, are we at plan? Are we hitting plan? Are we ahead of plan? Then automatically, you know, your sort of mindset as a founder, as, a, as someone who's trying to protect the long-term interests of the business, but also not trying to mess up people's bonuses and trying to mess up a long line of implications as a business owner and as a publisher that you have to take into consideration too, of course. So there's, I just can't all say, it's all highfalutin, oh, we turned down blast, look how great we are. I'm like the Pope. No. It starts from that realization first. If we're at a plan, we're hitting that, then I'm already in a mood to, and everyone's already geared towards someone coming and saying that. Now, if it's, again, I want to say if it's 25K, it's just an easy deal and we can go to another client and just say, hey, you know, it's just like an airline. It's like, hey, we can, can we move you this date? We'll bump you up to first class. We'll give you some extra cookies. We'll we'll do something. Um, and we'll really make it up to you in in that in. Sometimes we're able to make that work, but yes, it does come from that. Now, if it's, um, we're behind plan, we're doing that kind of thing, and someone's going to dangle $25,000, well, um, I haven't been in that situation here at this company just yet, so maybe we'll have another podcast when that
0: situation arises. Well, I hope that situation doesn't arise. Okay, Um, Let's talk a little bit now about how the advertising and subscription businesses work and support each other, because... You know, I write about this all the time. There's been a lot of dogma tweeted about or and talked about how it's subscriptions or advertising. But most mature operators understand it's both. How do your two business, these two particular business models work together? How do they work together?
1: They, I don't know how they, I, I guess you'd have to ask me more questions. I don't know how they don't work together. Um, because um, here we When I started, when, when John and I started the company, um, you know, John asked me, he said, so I was in charge of revenue. He was in charge of content. You know, we both, we both work with each other very closely, but essentially that's the breakdown. Right. And, uh, I told him when we're going to start the company, we were not going to go for paid subscriptions in 2016. I told him we were going to start with advertising because that's what I knew from Fierce, And that's where I had my relationships and it it was very few. It was just John and myself. Uh, our CTO Igor uh, and my wife Shella. it was the four of us working full-time when we started. And I said that I didn't know how to do it any other way other than call my advertising contacts that I had and say, hey, we're doing this thing and let's get started. And that's how we did it. Um, and But then I started realizing that, no, this really is... people Essentially, it started when we had one of our readers email John and I and just say, hey, I would pay you not to get this email blast, please. And suddenly I had this realization that I was just being way too cute and way too smart um, that I was just really missing the giant opportunity that no subscriptions are incredibly important and you can have an advertising business and you can have a subscription subscriptions business together. Um, And you can have both um, because essentially the bargain that we have with one class of our paid subscriber, it's, $225 a year. It's an individual sort of plan. You get all of the content and none of the advertising. So you want our core product and you never want to see an ad. You just want the news product. Great. We'll send it to you and you'll never see an ad. You'll never see an email blast. You'll never see anything. Um, And that's a subset of our audience, which is not large enough to make a difference to our advertisers, essentially. Right. Um, They don't, they just want the content that type of audience Perhaps that's the type of audience that advertising turns them off, right? There's always that that class. I don't. I don't think it's a big number. I actually have a lot some data here to to, to prove that, but it's not a a big piece of the pie. But it, it's a very important part of the audience. Right there, right. If they say I don't want to see that, I know all about these people who want to advertise to me. They they call me. They, I'm a very busy executive. They're calling me. They're calling my assistant. They're want meetings. They're hitting me up on LinkedIn. Like I get it. I just want the news. I respect that. We respect that a great deal. We don't want to send them advertising at all. In fact, our advert. We tell our sales team. will tell that we don't. You know, do you want to send an ad to someone who doesn't want it? You don't. But we have a significant part of our readership who even, for example, our enterprise readers, um, they will see the ads and they won't see too many. Now they'll see some email blasts, but they're not going to see 25 a week. They're not going to see 20. They're not going to see bottom dollar
0: ones. They're not going to see irrelevant ones. And so that's how it really works, I think. This episode is brought to you by Omida. May 4th, they are hosting Omida Idea Exchange in Chicago, discussing some of the most important topics in media. I'll be there hosting a special edition of the AMO podcast, but you'll also hear from executives at Access Intelligence, Endeavor Business Media, and so many others. Don't miss your chance to register today. Visit omida.com and click OX5. And now back to our discussion. I want to change topics now and talk about your events business, okay. um, because you have two, what looks like two different event strategies. The first is what you call franchise events, which are produced and programmed by your team. What's the model here? Is it exclusively sponsor driven? Do you charge for tickets? Is it both? Like, talk to me a little bit about this, the, the, the franchise events,
1: all of the above, all of the above, um, the events business is really based on it all starts with credibility, right? Can you put butts and see yourself? Do you have the ability to do that? Um, and, again, a lot of that I give the credit to my partner, John Carroll, uh, because this is something he's been doing year in and year out since he was at Fierce and so now at Endpoints. Um, where we've been going out there, it's an important part I believe of being a credible media business is that you go out there and you can be with your audience at important places and put yourself out there and and give them an opportunity to meet you and to, and to do all that, all that kind of stuff. And so um, our event strategy and the business model is exactly, it's based around the fact that John and now our, our team now beyond just John is able to program Uh, a panel essentially and a panel of executives and talk about a relevant topic that now hundreds, if not thousands of people want to hear about live and everything is built around that essentially around the events business. Now for our, our franchise events, essentially what we will do is we will offer the brand opportunities to say, you know, this event is brought to you by, big brand and that will be a, a pricey proposition generally um, and sometimes they will want to have activations to say you know we will want to be uh, part of the panel right so that will be a discussion we'll have with john or the editors is this person sometimes we'll have folks that want to sponsor it. i'll give you a good example here pharma for example they'll come in and uh, you know from the outside you'll look this is a pharma that has lots of money they're lobbyists they're the you know it, i can tell you That they, when they have given us their money, and we are completely transparent about it, they have given us absolutely zero guidelines on what to do with the content and no say on who we put on the panel, just that their president is on the panel. And because they are probably one of the most newsworthy actors when it comes to drug price, in one of, you know, in terms of their power on Capitol Hill. We would probably, if they didn't pay for that panel and we were doing one on drug pricing, we would invite them because that's a legitimate newsmaker. Um, But let's say that someone comes and they're not a legitimate newsmaker. Um, We may offer an auxiliary panel, you know, with their KOL and some other folks and and kind of build around that. But it's, again, a very case-by-case basis that we will do with the franchise event. Um, Before the pandemic, we did sell tickets. Um, and it was nice, you know. I want to say it was a little bit more than just change, of course. You know, it helped pay for the venue and stuff, but it wasn't a, the biggest piece of the event pie. Um, and it was nice, but essentially, you know, as all good event planners know, um, it was mostly a guarantee that people show up. And once you sell that ticket, we know there's a certain percent that will come, and, and we know how much to oversell and, and all that kind of fun stuff. Um, when the pandemic did hit, we Completely stop charging for tickets or any kind of attendance, um, because our model was never predicated on the fact that tickets were were the main sort of thing. Um, so it was just again big. We tried to do our thing, but again with the big brand sponsorships. And uh, I'm happy, you know.
0: Hopefully this year we'll be taking those back out live again. And then the second strategy has to do with co-locating. At industry events, uh, and I have a bunch of questions about this because it's candidly something I hear about in my day job. Can we can we go to South by Southwest? Can we go to can Can we do these things? So let's use an example. You had a uh, you hosted a three day virtual conference at J P Morgan's annual healthcare conference. How does this model work? Do you get support from J P Morgan? Are your attendees going to the main event, and you're hoping to pull some of them off? How are you convincing those attendees to not participate in JPM's portion and instead participate in yours? Like it's a very interesting model that makes a lot of sense to me, but it also seems very complicated.
1: Boy, this is where this is media operating, isn't it? Huh? So the answer to that question is that you have to be deeply embedded in this industry to know what's what. And 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 think that's in any industry. I don't know much about. You know, I'm a nerd, so I know about CES and stuff like that. I've never been. Um, but what I do know about trade shows and organizations and investment banks and investor shows is that every single one is different. And every single one is run by different stakeholders and they have different priorities and they have different so when it comes to that JP Morgan event itself, it is it and particularly before the pandemic, it was the industry's yearly number one news event where you would actually have, there was just certain elements of it. And then combined with the fact that the investment bank itself, JP Morgan, currently and through historically, you know, could change any year, but historically they do not, care that anyone uses say i'm at jp morgan we're doing an event at jp morgan as long as you're not actually at the westin event which you can't and doing it under their name with their logo um, they're quite happy with anyone just co-locating a party in san francisco's union square and saying they're part of jp morgan fantastic it's actually this nexus of the industry every single year i don't think jp morgan quite minds it's a very very smart strategy now I have spent a long time developing like good relations with a, a scientific, a very reputable scientific organization like ASCO, which is the American Society for uh, uh, Oncology. Um, And they have a very important meeting every June. Um, And they are very, and, and rightfully so very protective over their brand and very protective over how you sort of, say that right we cover that show our journalists cover that show because it's a very important show to cover all the most important cancer data and findings and the most important cancer specialists and doctors and researchers all congregate there so it's an incredibly important event for us to simply be there let alone co-locate an event or anything like that it's just simply part of our mission to be there Um, and so um, if we're going to do an event there at ASCO we're not going to we're, we are not going to infringe on our friends at ASCO by saying that it's this great party at ASCO and that it's not, you know, ASCO has their thing and it may be endpoints is, you know, cancer summit, uh, you know, party in Chicago, um, you know, and we'll tell our friends at ASCO exactly what we're doing and make sure that they know and, and they're okay with it. Um, and and we're just very careful about that kind of, if people want to sponsor ASCO, they can't do it through, Um, endpoints. If people want to sponsor JP Morgan, well, they can't sponsor JP Morgan, the bank, no, but if they would like to sponsor an event around JP Morgan, they can do it at endpoints or stat or any, any one of my competitors
0: as well. You mentioned that you're hopefully going to start doing live events this year or in-person events this year, but over the past two years, we've all learned how to do virtual. What are you thinking about a hybrid approach with these events? Are you just talk to me at what your your thoughts are about the hybrid approach to pulling off events now.
1: Well, I think it's a couple different things for, for one, I think that uh, the events business, we all know it's changed, but I think that we've permanently lost maybe about 20% of the audience that was, that was coming before. I don't think they will ever come back um, to any kind of crowded sort of networky business event i think they were also the people who hated going going to those things to begin with and found it very perfunctory um and that that kind of thing so i think that a lot of that is going to be gone so you'll find events will have to be a lot more intentional they will have to you know let's just not have the awkward coffee in front and all kinds of they'll have to be very intentional what are we doing here um and I think that you find a lot of enthusiasm for that kind of, as as long as you have that 20% that's not coming back, I think you have a 20% who just can't wait. Um, And I think that uh, that's going, that's how I'm thinking about our events. Now the hybrid model is even before the pandemic, we were trying to be good at live streaming the, you know, live portion of it. But of course, before the pandemic, even, you know, for, we'd like to think we're so forward thinking with this sort of stuff, but all of our events were so geared to that in-person, making sure that the sponsors were happy with this, that, and that the people there who were paying were happy. You know, we were doing um, catered breakfasts at Hilton's with 375 people and, you know, in Union Square. And do we want to do that again? Um, Maybe a modified um modified sort of version of that maybe maybe smaller maybe more intentional and do we want to be better at how what do we do for the rest of the audience i don't think we can leave out the audience any longer the online audience we need to figure out how to make them a part of it And we have some ideas coming up i think the summer we're we're going to go to bio in san diego if all goes well we're planning um you know we're planning a A cocktail hour later, which is not going to be virtual, but we're planning some content in the morning, which we are hoping to, to make virtual. And, and, and we're trying some couple things out over there, but it's going to be experimentation this year. I just don't think you can leave the online audience out anymore. And, and um, we'll all be learning a lot. I know I'm going to be listening to your
0: podcast later this year to see how others are doing it. So if we look at the three buckets, right. You know we have advertising, we have subscriptions, we have events, which you say is part of advertising, but I think it is unique enough to classify as its own bucket. If you look at those three buckets, what is the revenue breakdown at endpoints?
1: Well, right now, um, and it's just because like I we think we've got a, uh, we've got a ways to grow and I wouldn't say it's indicative of where it's going to end up, but right now it's it's about 50, 25, 25, right And 50 is going to be the advertising. Where
0: do you think it grows?
1: Boy, I don't know. I hope I have some exciting new hires who might be able to come on your podcast and tell you soon.
0: All right. Well, we'll wait for that. Um, Back in 2019, you wrote that business model article. And you wrote that you had 31,000 basic subscribers, of which 8,300 were paid. So that's about a 27% paid to basic comparison. Would you say that that's still from a, from a ratio perspective where you are today, even though you have obviously grown quite a bit over the past three years?
1: Um, the ratio to paid has increased a little bit. I'd say it's, it's increased a little bit. Um, but you know, as, as I've had, I've had, I've had people come to me and do the math and just say, look, your subscriptions business just can't be that big. I've done the math and no, they're right. <laughs> It'll get bigger.
0: <laughs> but, uh, that, yeah, that's about right. So you mentioned that you're a bit of a nerd and that you like to do a little bit of programming. So I want to talk about the technology stack that powers endpoints. Sure. What are the primary tools that the team uses to run this business? What What did you have to build? What did you pull off the shelf? I just want to understand if somebody wanted to launch endpoints for a different industry, what are the tools they would need to use?
1: Oh, see, that the tech stack doesn't matter. That's the, that's the number one thing to understand is that it simply doesn't matter. I love talking about tech stacks. I have, I have such great meetings with, uh, I love engineering more than I love engineering. And so I love talking about tech stacks. I love talking about tech stacks with my engineering team, but I'm always reminding my engineering team that that tech stack generally doesn't matter. It generally does not matter. And I'm always asking them to, just this morning, I was figuring out which, the job of a publisher, I was figuring out which one of our most opinionated editors should be invited to like a, a regular meeting with our engineering team to mouth off to them. Um, basically, um, right? So tech stack, What's what did we have to build? What did we use? When we first started, like I said, we started with four people. It was myself, um, our our top engineer, and our CTO, Igor, um, who's in Ukraine. He's safe right now. Um, and uh, my wife, Shella um, and John Carroll, our editor, right? So it was the four of us. And so when we first started out, Igor and I um, built up our WordPress template. He and I both... Coded it together. We are not, neither of us are front end developers and neither of us are designers, but I had a vision in mind that I wanted a very stark looking website with no programmatic advertising. Um, I wanted a very clean, information only. I was very opinionated about the fonts that I wanted. I didn't care what the designer told me it was ugly or not. I just wanted those fonts and I wanted it that way and I coded it my way. And, um, so we did that and we ran on WP engine. That was our host. Um, so I sort of, our embryo that I had before we launched with John, it was all on WP engine and it was, you know, it was like like $30 plan, uh, that we're using on WP engine. Um, and so that was our, and we used Slack cause the four of us could talk on Slack and I had to get, you know, that we were, it was just the four of us and not not much else really going on over there. And we used campaign monitor to send our emails out. So to build our list, um, essentially we would just we would keep all of our data in campaign monitor. We didn't have any other kind of place to store it. Um, and as we would build up our email subscriptions through our website, which was John would go on and post his articles, and even back then I did news writing too. And my wife Shella, she did news writing too back then, and it was, it was mostly John and we would post our articles and we would copy edit each other and we would post it in our wordpress um and we would then assemble our newsletters in campaign monitor using their wisewig tool in campaign monitor shella and i would go on and we would cut and paste literally from wordpress our stories john would tell us this is the subject line this is the five stories in the order of the five stories it's very much like a newspaper top story second story third story of the day and we had a deadline every single day and we still do and uh, he would tell us and i would go in there and i would fix it in campaign monitor and i'd send you know john and Shella a proof and he would approve it and we'd ship it to the readers and that's that was our entire tech stack when we first started. And if we, when we sold advertising, when I sold one, I would get the ad creative and I would just go in campaign monitor and I would just drop it in with the WYSIWYG thing. There's no, no anything um, other than that. Now our tech stack is developed into, now we, we have um, several more developers now and we've built some custom logic. It's all in WordPress, our logic. Um, but we now run on AWS. We run our own WordPress and AWS. Um, we do not use any kind of managed WordPress host. Um, we're really quite happy with it. Um, we've developed our own template. Um, we're working on a really great new refresh, but we are using some outside agencies which are helping us with that, which is uh, which has been great. Um, so far, we use Stripe to do all of our um, credit card processing. We don't use any kind of subscription tool. We've built it all in-house. Um, we keep all of our... Profiles, data warehousing, all that sort of in-house. We are not happy with Campaign Monitor. Sorry if anyone or Campaign Monitor is hearing this right now. We're not happy with them, uh, but we've built in so much of our infrastructure into that that it's just one of those things you just kind of can't move. But uh, we are we do like all the stuff happening at uh, Twilio, um, and so they're us. We've got a product that we're gonna launch soon to send our product with SMS and their SendGrid and all kinds of stuff over there. So we're pretty, we've been testing out all the different um, changes with all the email metrics and all and so forth. We've been pretty pleased with what we see with SendGrid. So we're looking to slowly shift all of our sending from Send uh, from campaign monitor to SendGrid. Um, what am I leaving out, out of my tech stack over here? It's, it sounds like a lot, but it's actually quite simple too. You don't need a lot for media.
0: The big buzzword, especially in B2B media is the CDP. Do you, do you use one? How do you use that at all? So the answer
1: is we don't use one. Now we have our own system that we've used that essentially we profile readers as they come in, um, in our own biopharma sort of classification system, which we, when I've gone out to the, the different vendors before, I never I never saw something that was so automated and classified that that could help me sell more ads in BioPharma right now than I was selling. Um, so the long answer is that, yes, I'm looking at all that kind of stuff. I'm going to be building in some great stuff because we're going to have some other products that are going to need it and scale from it and serve some, some contextual stuff based on profile data that we know about our users throughout our own platform. So that's coming. Uh, But currently we've been able to profile our audience using our own sort of proprietary methods and it's worked well, but may not work well at like three times our scale.
0: So you've mentioned that when you started, it was you, your CTO, your wife, and John. Mm -hmm. What does the team look like today? And what's the breakdown between edit and the different functions on the business side? Like how big are you guys?
1: Um, we're we're about forty people now and growing. Um, I'd like to approach fifty, sixty by the end of the year, um, and, and growing. Um, edit. I I, I want to be able to count this. I don't want to be as quoted, but I want to say it's fifteen or twenty and growing. Um, and so that's edits. Always edits the pride and joy of our company, and edits. Um, we have big plans for it, and and we're going to keep hiring. Um, for it. but the way it looks is we have our editorial team and it's run by by John Carroll. Um, and they're quite independent and they're running that product that's that, that that's out there. Um, and on the business side, um, we have our sales team which is out there going and selling, they're not selling subscriptions. They are selling only, Advertising. They're selling the brand opportunities. They're selling the lead gen. They're selling the events. They're selling webinars, and they're selling the studio products. Um, and they're having conversations with people saying, "We we need to do this. We want to be this." Then we we match them um, with their sort of needs, so their content needs and their audience needs. So we have a sales team doing that. Um, we our subscriptions team on the business side we're building up now, but essentially is just customer support at this moment um, because it's all. Um, Exactly. It's all people that come in and, and actually uh, there's no proactive subscription sales that go on at that price point. Um, it's all intake. Um, and uh, we have our client success team, um, which is, again, essentially trafficking the ads. They're making sure that once the sales team sells that, that ad, that, that they're using our platform properly that, that, uh, you know, some, as you know, and everyone knows everyone's sort of different over there and we have our own quirks and stuff and we want to make sure that they're, they're doing that well. So we have a great client success team that does that and that's putting on the events and putting on the virtual events. And we have a great virtual events team that makes sure that, um, our own team looks good on zoom and help our clients look good on zoom. And that's a, a great skill, um, now, and, and we have a great, um, Business team, really, too. Great CFO, great HR team, all that sort of stuff that you need in a, in a media business. Like I said, it started with that four. So, you know, how do we bring that HR person in? How did we bring the CFO in? How did we bring all of those people in that you didn't, you couldn't afford until you could afford them? Um, man,
0: it's been a trip. So, if we look forward three years from now, right, what does endpoints look like? Is it fundamentally different? Is it, is it, incrementally different what 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 is endpoints in three years
1: well i'd like to say that uh it's uh it's bigger
0: um but
1: it's staying to it staying to its core uh and its core is serving biopharma um and biopharma is a big industry and there's a lot going on it's a very important industry um and it's got an industry with a very bright um i mean it's 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 a very scientific future it's the future it reminds me like when i say i'm a nerd Uh, I was into BBSs and modems and all that kind of stuff when I was a kid. Like it reminds me, like I said, I'm not a scientist, but the feeling that I feel like I do consider myself a biopharma journalist and I, the feeling I get when I speak with people in the industry and the feeling I get when I, when I read my, my own team's work, it's like the early internet, like even earlier, earlier than the internet. Um, It doesn't feel like late stage internet at all. And And when they say there's just, it's just more than money. It's just really exciting science. So I want for endpoints in three years, I want to be covering all of that stuff. What would be most important to me is that we're really at the forefront of covering that stuff for the people who are in this industry, um, and doing it for them in a way that, that they're like, you know, this is a publication that gets it. That's for me. And, you know, is not covering it in the way that, um, you know, a very, like a a generalist public publication would like, you know, I'm a pilot. So when I read about plane crashes, um, you know, in a really generalist publication just drives me nuts. So I always strive to make sure that in, in our own publication that, you know, all of our writers, our business writers are great writers. They're great storytellers. They may not all be scientists, but I want them to be able
0: to tell it all of these great stories in a way that makes the industry proud. I want to end the show with the same two questions that I ask every operator that comes on. First, what is a mistake that you've made in your career that you wish you hadn't? And what did you learn from that mistake? I could list a lot of mistakes.
1: Um, I'm sure a lot of people could. But um, I think probably the biggest mistake I could think of uh, that I may want to admit to right now is... um, i just not being clear with people about my expectations. That's a really big one, you know? Um, and it doesn't matter if you think you're good at it. You have to constantly be checking yourself at it. Um, and that you can't do that by yourself. You can't do that by yourself. Um, and as a founder, as someone who runs a company, who has kind of started a company from nothing, and eventually then you're really working with actually something and, and you're responsible for a lot. That's actually very important to make sure that your expectations are extremely clear with everyone. Um, and really that's, it's um, I think I've gotten a lot better. Right. Um, but it's actually a very sober reminder to anyone doing this kind of stuff that you can't be willy nilly about it. Um, and you've got to be very clear about your expectations with people.
0: And my second question is what is some advice you would give someone thinking about launching their own media company? Don't. really consider it don't
1: um i mean why why no i i don't mean that to be negative i don't mean that to be negative you have to want it so bad you have to want it so bad um because how many people do i know who've done it and burnt out and can't do it or whatever i've been there you know i've only been able to stick through it because i've got a great partner I've only been able to do it because I have a great partner. Um, I, it's God's honest truth. Like I couldn't have done it by myself. No way. So if you want to start a media company, consider, do you have the right resources around you? Do you have the right people around you? I did. I was extremely lucky. Uh, so people come to me and say, how'd you do it? I didn't do it alone. I did not do it alone. I could not have done it alone. I couldn't have done it without my partner. I couldn't have done it with my wife. No way.
0: And that will be the end of the show. I'm going to hit stop recording but, and let this. But these... before you before
1: you do that, Jacob, I just have to say something. You are providing some of the best insights for media operators week in and week out. I really want to thank you before you stop recording, uh, because I am forwarding your emails to my team regularly. And even in the last few weeks, this very thing has happened where I get your email. I'm forwarding it to like, um, for example, like my CFO, who is. An amazing CFO, right? It's worked. At, he's just an amazing person, but he's more newer to media companies, right? So, I actually find your analysis and your content, even if it's not exactly about something we do at Endpoint, so insightful in a way that there's few others who are doing it at the level that you are doing it. I want to thank you. And then even this week, I'll be forwarding your email, and then I'll have like other people in my network, not working over here, who will be forwarding your emails to me, being like, "Did you see this?" This is great stuff. So Jacob, you are doing a great job. I want to tell you that.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, I really do appreciate that. If you enjoyed this episode, hit subscribe and give it a five-star rating with your thoughts. If you want even more, sign up for the newsletter at AmediaOperator.com. Each Tuesday, I analyze the latest media news. And on Fridays, I do deep dives into specific strategic and tactical topics about building media businesses.